When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and happy Easter. I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and I'm so grateful that we could spend a bit of our Holy Week together. And I mean Holy Week, a whole week's worth of feeling the holiness of this season. When I served my mission in Puerto Rico, I, I fell in love with the, the fact that uh, los hispanohablantes, Spanish speakers, call it La Semana Santa, the Holy Week. And I never really realized that every day of this week, important things were happening in the life of Christ. From Palm Sunday, through the beginning of that week, on to Good Friday with the crucifixion, Sabado de Gloria, as they say in Spanish, and then Easter Sunday. This is an entire week worth celebrating. Now for our Come Follow Me study this week, it's going to be a little different, and I'll explain that in just a second. But I want to start by sharing about two sacred Easter's that I had. One 24 years ago, and the other three years later. The first one was Easter of 1997. I was a student at the BYU Jerusalem Center studying abroad in Israel and falling in love with the Holy Land, really feeling why it was called that, all the things the Savior did to make that place so holy. And I remember on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, we all uh, gathered, all of us Jerusalem students, gathered at the, a little chapel in Bethany, not far from Jerusalem. You just have to cross the valley to get, to get into the old city. But it was there, Bethany, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived and where Jesus would stay with his disciples when they were in Jerusalem. It was from there that Jesus left to, to make that Palm Sunday walk. You see, this was the triumphal entry. As Jesus rode into Jerusalem, as his disciples were spreading clothing across the path before him and waving their palm branches and, and shouting praises of Hosanna, the closest we come to that, by the way, is when we participate in the Hosanna shout in a solemn assembly. And for us, rather than palm branches, it's white handkerchiefs. But to be able to welcome the Savior into his city, as it was anciently, or into his house, as we do in the temple. On that Palm Sunday of 1997, so many of us BYU Jerusalem students uh, gathered in this little chapel in Bethany, surrounded by hundreds of Christian pilgrims from all over the world. I, I remember the Filipinos the best. They were so excited and they were singing songs in Tagalog and, and just in happy anticipation of being able to recreate that day and walk our, ourselves as a group from Bethany to Jerusalem. Now it was pouring rain outside and nobody cared. With these drenched palm branches, we walked that same path that Jesus had 2,000 years before. It was an incredible experience. That whole week was to spend some extra time in Gethsemane, for example. But on Easter Sunday, I remember that there are two holy, holy places as far as the crucifixion and resurrection are concerned in Jerusalem. And Protestants believe that the place of resurrection was the garden tomb. And the Catholics believe that this place of burial and resurrection was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Both are places of beautiful holiness and spirit. But I remember we had heard that there was going to be a, a, a sunrise service for Easter Sunday at the Garden Tomb. And we wanted to be there. We knew that practically every other Christian in, in Jerusalem would want to be there too. So we wanted to make sure we could get there early enough 
and I can't remember the exact time of, of sunrise that day, but we got there hours before sunrise. And rather than just wait outside the, this garden where the tomb is, we went in and we joined another group. This was, I mean, it's funny when you think of all these different uh, Christian populations around the world and everybody wants to have some time in that holiest of places on that holiest of days. And so they kind of have to carve up the calendar and say, okay, you can have it for this hour. And this group and this language can have it for that hour. Well, by the time we got there in, in the pitch black of night, it was a German group. And so we entered with them and we, and we enjoyed this wonderful, I didn't understand a word, but this beautiful uh, pre-sunrise Easter worship service with German Christians. After their service was over and they got up to leave, we stayed put so we could be there and, and keep our seats for the next group of English-speaking Christians that came to be able to participate in this sunrise service. I remember before it began, uh, what the person that was in charge, this I can't remember if it was a priest or a reverend or whom, but they lit one single candle, their own. And then everyone in the, in the garden, and it's fairly large, it was wall-to-wall -wall seating, and everyone had a candle they'd been given. And when this, this pastor lit his candle and then passed the flame to a few people in the front row, who then passed their flame to others and others, and it began to spread throughout the garden until this entire place was filled with these tiny twinkling lights, filling that garden with light to represent the resurrection of the light of the world. We sang hymns, we heard sermons. It was such a powerful Easter for me. Now, three years later, this was a very different Easter. I was in different surroundings. I was in Utah instead of Israel, but I wanted to have a similar sunrise kind of service. But rather than having a place packed with Christian pilgrims from all over the world, I wanted to spend that Easter Sunday with a single individual. A girl that I was dating, I had already proposed to her, but I would continue doing that for the next oh, six more months, I believe, before she finally relented and said yes. But I remember we drove to the, the, the Jordan River Temple, where we could have an amazing view of the Salt Lake Valley below and watch the sunrise up over the Wasatch Mountains. And I remember as we prepared for that day, I, I don't think we even shared with each other our plan, but it was amazing as we came together, we, we must have been on the same wavelength because for our Easter gift for one another, among other things, we shared scriptures with each other. And to have gone in advance through scripture to find some of our most important and meaningful verses about the atonement of Jesus Christ, his suffering for us in Gethsemane, his death on the cross of Calvary, his resurrection at that garden tomb, and to share with the person that I loved most my feelings about him whom I truly love most was a powerful experience for us both in a scrapbook that I later made. Yes, I made it. It was my, my foray into the scrapbooking world to try to chronicle our, our courtship. I included all those little slips of paper that I had put into those little plastic uh, uh, Easter eggs as we opened them and read scripture together that morning and just rejoiced in the experience, all that Jesus had done for us. You see, I have long had personal experience with the atonement as I've tried to repent of my own sins, but I didn't have personal experience with the resurrection the way my wife did because my wife lost her mom when she was eight and her brother when she was 15. Death was a, a more pressing reality for her than it was for me. And to hear my wife bear testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection he offers to all because of his gift, 
that is such a moving experience for me from someone who knows so personally people that she is looking forward to greeting and throwing her arms around when she passes the veil. All of this made possible through the atonement, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is what this is all about. If you remember at the end of last year when we had this, this Christmas lesson, and I tried to explain just how connected Christmas was to the atonement, that this was Christmas condescension in order to prepare eventually for an, a, an Easter resurrection. If you have some extra scripture study time this week, or want to spend some additional time connecting on a deeper level to Easter, then I would invite you to go back and watch that Christmas message, because in many ways it was more Easter than Christmas anyway. But that brings me to what we're going to do this year for our Easter message. My original hope, I had last year I had done a video on the atonement. This year I had hoped to do a video on the crucifixion. We don't use crosses in our architecture or our iconography like most other Christians do. And there's good reason for that. But I also think there's good reason for understanding the power of that symbol of the cross. I've talked about it in various lessons already, the vertical and the horizontal, that there is the first great commandment, that beam that forces our, our eyes heavenward or, or beckons us in that direction. And then this horizontal cross beam that we attach to it, the second great commandment as we reach out to all those around us and love our neighbor as ourselves. I love the thought of taking up our cross daily. Like we talked a few weeks ago about Joseph Knight Sr. and the Lord's mercy and, and generosity in sharing that word cross with someone who had something that most of us might think was relatively easy, but was hard for him. And the Lord validated that and understood it and asked him to take up his cross just as Jesus had. When I get to teach the New Testament in Institute or a wonderful newer course that's called Jesus Christ and the Everlasting Gospel, where we get to go through everything about Jesus's ministry, pre-mortal, mortal, post-mortal. Post it's an incredible class. I take a day and spend it just on atonement, Gethsemane. Another lesson just on Calvary and the crucifixion. And another lesson that's fully dedicated to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Someday I still would love to share those lessons with each of you. But because this year is a little different for me, and I hope that you'll uh, excuse me for this, but I've been barely keeping my snorkel tip above water these last few weeks. I always joke when people say, well, are you keeping your head above water? I, I, I always shake my head and go, my head hasn't been above the water for, for years, but I keep stretching my snorkel. That's become my new phrase. It's not about keeping your head above water. It's about stretching your snorkel because as, no matter how deep I get underneath, as long as the tip is up above the surface, I can still breathe. The air is coming on down and I'm, and I'm grateful for that. But after spending basically the last decade on my PhD, the, the deadlines are crashing down upon me to finish my dissertation. I only have a few more weeks and I've been pulling 18 hour days trying to get, squeeze it all in and, and get things finished. Trying to film and edit and, and post these videos has been, has been a, a challenge the last month or so. I, I, at first I thought, maybe I'll just invite everybody, please bear with me and, and be patient for me. Here is a five minute uh, a snapshot of the material that we'll study this week. You're on your own, good luck. I'll see you in the middle of April. But I love the Doctrine and Covenants too much and didn't want to miss out on that. Uh, and so it's been crazy trying to get to, to do both things. When I saw that there was a week for Easter, right before my due date came crashing upon me. That came as a great tender mercy for me, as I thought, maybe I can have a week where I can really dedicate it to my dissertation, 
since I filmed a lesson about the atonement last Easter, when the channel was still young, and most of you probably didn't get a chance to see it. Now please understand that that means even lower production values than usual. Okay? We've, we've made some progress since then. But as I've reviewed that lesson myself, and just felt once again the gratitude for the things that the Spirit has taught me about Gethsemane, I want to share that with you this year. And I promise I'll do something different next Easter when all this dissertation work is behind me. Consider it in a way, my attempt to take a lesson and, and pack it into one of those little plastic eggs and leave it in this Easter basket that I, I hope to share with each of you. A gift of scripture to be able to convey to you my testimony of the Savior Jesus Christ and all he did for us. So to each of you, Thank you for bearing with me in spite of my crazy schedule. Thank you for excusing me from a new lesson this time around. Thank you also for your prayers that I'll actually be able to meet my deadlines and be able to come back with, I'll probably look taller on video in, in, in a month uh, without this weight on my shoulders and we'll, we'll dive back into the Doctrine and Covenants and, picked up, and pick up where we left off. But more than anything, thank you for your faith. Thank you for your desire to become unshaken in your testimony of Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? That question has always haunted me. It's something that's motivated me. And I, as I've gotten to know so many of you around the world and read your comments and, and seen emails and, and communicated with many of you, I know that that will be a resounding yes. And so with gratitude for each of you and my love for all of you, I share with you my testimony of Jesus Christ my love and gratitude for him and all that he did for me in Gethsemane in this lesson that I share with you now, the awful arithmetic of the atonement. I want to spend a few minutes with you today talking about what took place in Gethsemane and trying to make sense of a phrase that Elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve said repeatedly in different venues. He mentioned this phrase often, but never explained it in depth. He referred to what he called the awful arithmetic of the atonement. And I'd like to do some, some math today with you to try to make sense of the multiplication and division, the addition and subtraction that went into the Lord's ordeal in that sacred garden. In fact, I want to start, though, with a question. It was meant to be rhetorical. When Jacob first phrased it in Jacob chapter 4, verse 12, he says, why not speak of the atonement of Christ? He's asking it again, rhetorically, as if to say, is there anything more important to talk about? Why not speak of the atonement of Christ? Well, I know rhetorical questions aren't meant to be answered, but if there were one person who would have the right to actually voice a response to this, and not the one that Jacob intended, that would be the Apostle John. Now, most prophets would vouch for what Jacob is trying to convey here. Jacob himself talks about every prophet speaking of Jesus Christ, prophesying, pointing to him. Uh, Abinadi says the same thing as he's speaking to the wicked priests of Noah. He says to them, did not Moses prophesy unto them concerning the coming of the Messiah and the God, and the God should redeem his people? Yea, and even all the prophets who have prophesied ever since the world began, have they not spoken more or less concerning these things? So when Jacob asks his fellow witnesses 
why not speak of the atonement of Christ? All of them would say, why not speak of the atonement? I can give you no reason. Well, perhaps a solitary hand is raised as John the Beloved suggests one possible reason. You see, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are three accounts of what took place in Gethsemane as far as atonement is concerned. Matthew gives us a view, Mark gives us another, and Luke gives us a third. But John gives us no insight into what the, what the Savior endured during that night. And that's odd to me. Matthew was an apostle, so he would have been among the eleven. Judas has already left. Among the eleven that are there. He's still a stone's throw away, but somehow he was able to piece together the details that he gives us. Mark would not have been there, but as is usually suggested, uh, as a close fellow servant of Peter, he could have used Peter's first-hand account. And yet, again, Peter is drowsy, unable to watch with him that one hour. But Somehow Peter would have put together some clues and conveyed them to Mark, who conveyed them to us. Luke was not there at all, uh, but as a, a good historian, a good journalist of the, time, of the time period, to seek as many first-hand accounts as he could, add to them his own perspective as a physician. Uh, you see some of the physical suffering in the Luke account that you don't see anywhere else. But again, the question, John of any of the four gospel writers, you had the best vantage point. Yours would have been a first-hand account and one of the three closest observers to the actual scene. And yet, what do you see in the book of John? In chapter 18, there's so much lead up to Gethsemane. John spends the bulk of his, of his gospel at the Last Supper. What, what takes place here in chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron. Kidron is how it's often pronounced elsewhere. Where was a garden? Here's the garden of Gethsemane. Into the which he entered and his disciples. Now what you would expect to follow in the next verse would be a description of Jesus' sufferings. The three times he pleads with the Father to have this cup pass from him. But what happens? The end of verse 1, Jesus and his disciples have entered Gethsemane. And in verse 2, Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place and goes. For whatever reason, John skips over that atoning scene as if none of it occurred. So when Jacob says, why not speak of the atonement? I picture a very humbled John raising his hand and saying, can I suggest a few reasons? That was the one night that Jesus needed something from us, and yet we could not watch with him one hour. Can I please not revisit that? Not here, not now. I think John hides some of the beautiful details of the atonement in the book of Revelation, where they are shrouded in symbolism to maintain their sacredness. But I picture John worrying about his own failure to be there for Jesus when the Lord that he loved so much most needed him. Perhaps it was the sacredness of the scene that John refused to convey in a gospel. 
whatever the reason, John decided, I can't speak of the atonement, at least not here. In a way, that seems fitting for the event. When Jesus in the Doctrine and Covenants says that I have trodden the winepress alone and none were with me, yes, Peter, James, and John were nearby, but none were truly with Jesus, let alone anyone to truly describe what was taking place in those darkened hours. Frederick Farrar, the great Christian believer and writer of The Life of Christ, one of the great books about Jesus. In fact, Elder Talmadge in, the, in Jesus the Christ quotes from Farrar frequently. Farrar says this about this scene. We may not intrude too closely into this scene. It is shrouded in a halo and a mystery into which no footstep may penetrate. We, as we contemplate it, are like those disciples. Our senses are confused. Our perceptions are not clear. We can but enter into their amazement and sore distress half waking, half oppressed, with an irresistible weight of troubled slumber. They only felt that they were dim witnesses of an unutterable agony, far deeper than anything which they could fathom. Truly, the atonement of Jesus Christ is deeper than any of us can fathom. But I hope that as we discuss what Jesus endured in Gethsemane, we can somehow penetrate that veil, that sacred halo, to be able to understand as best as we mortals are able some of what Jesus Christ endured there and for whom. To do so, as I said, this will be part arithmetic lesson to try to make sense of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. But it will also be part art lesson because I think there is power in, in visuals to see what no mortal truly saw but to try to make sense of the depictions that great artists have tried to envision for each of us. Whether you're a left brain or a right brain then, I hope that what we discuss in the next few minutes will be a blessing to you as we merge arithmetic from one side and art from the other. If we were to envision an art gallery of sorts to try to understand what took place in Gethsemane, I think often we would see at the entrance this picture of Jesus kneeling next to one of those ancient olive trees, praying to God and taking upon him the sins of all humanity. That's the picture of Gethsemane that I grew up with. And yet, as we venture further down the corridor of this art gallery, we will see picture after picture, portrait after portrait, trying to convey a larger picture of what took place in the garden. The first few pictures we would meet would depict the division aspect of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. The division between divinity and humanity that was Jesus Christ. This, in fact, is where Christmas comes into the Easter story. The birth of Jesus is key to the death of Jesus. Not just because there is no death that is not preceded by birth, but the nature of Christ's birth is what allowed for the nature of Christ's atonement. In technical terms, there's a word called Christology, the study of Jesus, and another term called soteriology, the study of the atonement. There is no soteriology without Christology. There is no Easter without Christmas. 
There is no doctrine of atonement without a doctrine of incarnation. And the incarnation of Jesus was division between divinity from his Father in heaven and humanity from his mortal mother, Mary. So imagine, if you will, facing portraits. One of Jesus as Jehovah, the Almighty Son of the Almighty God, facing baby Jesus, the helpless and innocent Son of Mary. And as those two portraits coincide, as they merge to show us who Jesus truly is, it's that dual inheritance that allows him to perform the awful arithmetic of the atonement. I don't know what it was like for you if you've had children to look at this newborn and start making kind of dibs on different body parts. That, oh, the eyes came from my mother or the, the hair is, comes from father. In our family, almost every child has dad's nose and mom's hair for whatever reason. And to watch them grow and develop and show signs of the dual inheritance that they're receiving from two sides of the family. The same holds true in the case of Jesus Christ. If we were to do a, a family tree, so to speak, and see father and mother, what is he receiving from his father? Divinity, immortality, the power of life. What's he receiving from his mother? Mortality, humanity, the power to die. Now, death doesn't seem like much of a gift compared to the life that he's receiving from his father. And yet, in order to atone, you not only need the ability to overcome death, you need the ability to suffer death in the first place. It's one thing to suffer for all humanity. Only a God can do that. But to suffer at all would require a mortal inheritance. Notice this verse in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus says of himself, as if foreshadowing, No man taketh it, he's speaking of his life, in fact we can go back to 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Laying it down was a gift that his mother gave him. Taking it again was a gift that his Father gave him. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, thank you, Mother. And I have power to take it again, thank you, Father. Without Christmas, there is no Easter. Without dual parenthood, there is no divine sonship. Without the incarnation, there is no atonement. That is perhaps only the most obvious of many, many passages in Scripture that show this dual inheritance of Jesus Christ. Notice, for example, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. This is an incredible passage about the condescension of Christ. To condescend, to come down with us, to leave premortal godhood and emerge in mortal childhood. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There's divinity speaking. In the form of God, is not, it's not robbery to be equal with God. Now for the humanity. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. 
And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That was mother's inheritance. And now for fathers, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. I think one of the most confusing passages in all of Scripture is Mosiah chapter 15, where Abinadi is trying to explain the atonement to people who don't understand it. I've had people attack the church based on Mosiah chapter 15, saying that Abinadi was a Trinitarian. And I'll confess, at first glance, reading the first few verses of Mosiah 15, it does sound like Abinadi is teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. He's not, though. He's not. In context, all of these chapters leading up to this, he's trying to explain the atonement of Christ. He just quoted Isaiah 53 in Mosiah chapter 14, one of the most Christ-centered chapters of the Old Testament, focusing on the atonement of Jesus, this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief who would, whose stripes would heal us. Well, in chapter 15, he's not shifting gears and trying to explain the nature of the, of the Trinity. He's trying to explain what enabled Jesus to perform the atonement as described or prophesied in chapter 14. And this is what he says. Now Abinadi said unto them, I would that you should understand that God himself shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. And because he dwelleth in flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. And having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son, uh-oh, now we're starting to sound Trinitarian, is Jesus the Father and the Son? In verse 3, he says, The Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son, because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. Again, this language of Jesus as Father and Son sure does sound Trinitarian. But again, since Abinadi is explaining atonement, he's trying to couch soteriology in Christology. He's trying to ground Easter in Christmas. What he's talking about in, in Mosiah chapter 15 has nothing to do, well, only tangentially to do with God the Father. Everything he's referring to in these passages is regarding the Son, Jesus Christ. But he's grappling with the dual inheritance of Jesus Christ. Every time he's talking about the Father and the Son, he's, talking, he's not talking about Heavenly Father and Jesus as the Son. He's talking about Jesus himself as two sides. Now, he could have called those two sides his divinity and his humanity. He could have called it the divine side and the mortal side. He could have called it the God side and the Mary side. Instead, Abinadi calls it the father side and the son side. I'm a father and a son simultaneously. And there are times where I can clearly discern within me which side of me is at the, is at the fore. There are times I have to do the hard stuff and make big decisions and put my big boy pants on and I have to be the father in my family. There are other times where I'm overwhelmed by things and don't know what to do and boy do I wish I could crawl back to my home growing up and ask my dad to make the hard things because I just want to be a son again. Within Jesus, there is a side of him that is father from his father. And there is a side of him that is son from his mother. And you see in this passage the two sides of Jesus. So don't ever think of the father here separately. Reread the verses and see Jesus as both father and son. A father side and a son side. 
Verse 1 again, Now Abinadi said unto him, I would that you should understand that God himself, this is God as in Jehovah, God Jesus, God the second, shall come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. Here's how. Because he dwelleth in the flesh, he shall be called the Son of God. Going through a mortal birth through his mother Mary, he's going to be have a son side, a mortal side. Having subjected the flesh side of him, to the will of the Father side of him, being the Father and the Son, we're still only talking about Jesus, the Father sighed because he was conceived by the power of God, his divinity. And the Son sighed because of the flesh, his mortality from Mary, thus becoming the Father side and the Son side all in the same person, namely Jesus. And they are one God. We could say he is one God. Yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and of earth. And thus the flesh side of Jesus, becoming subject to the Spirit side of Jesus, or the Son side, to the Father side. We experience this every fast Sunday when the Son side of us or daughter side of us becomes subject to the Father or Mother side of us when the flesh becomes subject to the Spirit. Jesus suffereth temptation and yieldeth not to the temptation. Suffering temptation is his son's side. Yielding not to temptation is his father's side. But suffereth himself to be mocked and scourged and cast out and disowned by his people. And after all this, verse 6, after working many mighty miracles, there's the father's side, among the children of men, he shall be led, here's the son's side, yea, even as Isaiah said, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Even so he shall be led, crucified, and slain, the flesh becoming subject unto death. That's the Son's side. The will of the Son, side of Jesus, being swallowed up in the will of the Father, side of Jesus. And thus God, the Father's side, breaketh the bands of death, having gained the victory over death, giving the Son, side of Jesus, power to make intercession for the children of men. I love the end of that, by the way. It's the Son's side of Jesus that intercedes for us, since it's that mortal Messiah that knows all too well how hard it is to live a perfect life. He did it, but he understands where we're coming from in our inability to fully follow him. This duality within Jesus is not something that we find only in the Book of Mormon. It runs throughout the New Testament once we have eyes to see. We already saw those passages in John and in Philippians, but look at a few more, even more poignant ones in Luke chapter 12, for example. Luke chapter 12, Jesus starts hinting at this rendezvous with redemption that he would soon enough have. And in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, notice what he says. I have a baptism to be baptized with. This will not be a baptism in water as at the beginning of his ministry. This will be a baptism in blood. This will be a baptism in pain and anguish in Gethsemane. And he says, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished? Straightened, not G-H-T. This is A-I-T. Straight, like narrow. A straight, like a tiny little body of water being crushed between two emerging land masses. 
Here's the Father side of Jesus saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with. I have to atone for the sins of humanity. And yet his son's side admitting, how am I straightened till it be accomplished? This is hard. In John chapter 12, you see the two sides of Jesus. Again, this is the division aspect of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. John chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus says as the son, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Of course he wants to say that. He will say that three times that night in Gethsemane. Let this cup pass. Here he's saying it in advance. My soul is troubled. What am I supposed to say? Father, save me from this hour. But then his father's side responds, But for this cause came I unto this hour. That's the whole reason I came. And I cannot shrink simply because my son's side wants to. You see the son side of Jesus so poignantly as Gethsemane looms larger and larger. In John chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus is troubled in spirit. In Matthew 26, 37 and 38, he is sorrowful and very heavy. He's exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. In Mark 14, 33, he is sore amazed. How do you amaze an omniscient being? How do you surprise divinity? Well, by coupling it to humanity. As Jesus, fully divine and fully human, that dual inheritance. Elder Maxwell used to talk about the difference between knowing things cognitively and knowing things experientially. I can say to my wife, almost with a straight face, that I understand childbirth. I've been a part of it six different times. The first one was my own. I don't remember it well. But the other five were for our five children. And I can say to my wife, hey, I read what to expect when you're expecting, the same as you did. I was there in the delivery room right alongside you, having my hand crushed to death by your vice grip. I've, I, I know it. I get it. Well, after she's done throwing things at me, I can fully admit I only understand childbirth cognitively, and even that not very well. My wife, on the other hand, understands childbirth experientially. And so for the God side of Jesus to understand mortal agony cognitively, but to be sore amazed once he began knowing it experientially. Perhaps the best passage to illustrate that is back in the Book of Mormon with Alma chapter 7, which ranks, I think, for most people as the, the best, the, most, the favorite, the most powerful passage about the atonement in the Book of Mormon. We usually begin when I hear people quote it in verse 11. That's how I always remembered it when I was young, Alma 7, 11. Uh, where it talks about what Jesus endured. We'll get there, but go back a verse and notice in verse 10, Mary is mentioned. I'm amazed at how often in the Book of Mormon, when the atonement is explained, Mary is waiting in the wings. She's mentioned in conjunction with atonement passages, as if these Book of Mormon prophets wanted to make sure that we understood 
the connections between Christmas and Easter. That, it, that there is no soteriology without Christology. So in verse 10, Behold, he shall be born of Mary. That's the sun side of Jesus. She being a virgin, a precious and chosen vessel, who shall be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost and bring forth a son, even the Son of God. There's the Father side of Jesus. And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind. There's the Son side. And this, that the word might be fulfilled, which saith he will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people. The fact that he can take upon himself these things. Choose. Mary's side gives him the possibility. The father's side gives him the power to choose those things. Verse 12, he will take upon him death. There's a convergence of the two. Taking upon him power of God but the potential to die, the power of humanity, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people. He will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now back to this cognitive versus experiential knowledge. Verse 13, Now the Spirit knoweth all things. The portrait of Jesus as Jehovah is all-knowing when it comes to mortal experiences. And yet to share in those mortal experiences, to come down, condescend with us. Nevertheless, the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. That passage from Alma, that masterpiece, is so full of the repeated phrase, take upon him. He has the power to take these things upon him. It was not thrust upon him by a father that was requiring, demanding it of it. He chose, he asked for these things. He took them upon him that he might know. So he would have perfect empathy for each of us. The great gift that we gained from Gethsemane was atonement reconciliation, forgiveness. The great gift that Jesus acquired in Gethsemane was empathy. And it was hard won. Part of the dual inheritance from his father and his mother. One more passage from the Book of Mormon worth mentioning here is from King Benjamin. Mosiah chapter 3. Notice in verse 5, Benjamin prophesies, Behold, a time cometh and is not far distant that with power the Lord Omnipotent who reigneth and who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, there's divinity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay. There's humanity. These are these two portraits facing each other across the aisle. And shall go forth amongst men working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, the blind to receive their sight, the deaf to hear, curing all manner of diseases. I think it was the father side of Jesus that gave him the power to perform those miracles, and the mother side of Jesus, the son side, the mortal side, that made him want to in the first place. Verse 7, And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body, hunger, thirst, and fatigue. That's all the son side. 
But notice this next phrase, even more than man can suffer, except it be unto death. We sometimes picture Jesus as having an unfair advantage, not fully getting buffeted by the waves of a mortal experience. After all, he could walk on top of them. And yet this passage clarifies that his mortal side allowed him to suffer temptation, pain, hunger, thirst, fatigue, but his divine side allowed him to suffer more of that than others. This is where division begins to meet multiplication in the awful arithmetic of the atonement. That what he felt as a human could be multiplied because of his divine inheritance. Elder Talmadge makes it clear in Jesus the Christ that had a mere mortal suffered all that Jesus suffered in Gethsemane, he would have fallen unconscious. Unconsciousness is the body's escape hatch. It's, it's the eject button. It's the get me out of this situation. I cannot feel all that I'm feeling. Welcome oblivion is what Elder Talmadge calls it. And in the most extreme cases, unconsciousness can eventuate in death. The ultimate release from pain and suffering that a physical body simply cannot endure. Unless you have the power to take up life or to maintain life, even in the face of death, there is this schism of soul, this division within Jesus taking place in Gethsemane. A mortal side crying out three times, if it be possible, take this cup from me. And three times a divine side responding, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This is a son side and a father side at war with one another. With the father side, the spirit side, the divine side always winning and the son side always submitting. To reiterate, the divine side did not lessen what the mortal side was feeling. It intensified it. If it was purely up to the Son of Mary, his body would have automatically gone unconscious and, per, and most likely died. And yet to see the divine Son of God hold on and say, not all have been suffered for yet. To make the infinite into the intimate and to push back welcome oblivion until he could truly say of all of us, it is finished. If the beginning of verse 7 is the sun side and the middle shifts into the divine side, I really see the end as the perfect melding of them both. For behold, blood cometh from every pore, so great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. Verse 8, And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth. There's Son and Father all together in the same person. The Creator of all things from the beginning, there's the Father side, and his Mother shall be called Mary. There's the sun side. Again, Christmas always waiting in the wings when Easter is presented. I mentioned that here division starts taking on multiplication. 
and I want to return to, mul to multiplication momentarily, but can I bring in some addition for a moment? I grew up in Southern California, just north of Los Angeles, and Six Flags Magic Mountain was in my hometown. We would have season passes and we'd go all the time when we were young. And I remember when I was really little and I dreamed of riding the big roller coasters. My nemesis was this cartoon character cut out at the beginning of the line that held his unrelenting hand just so high and stopped me in my tracks with the sign across his chest saying, must be this tall to ride. That was my enemy. I wasn't tall enough yet. There was a minimum height requirement. But honestly, when I finally met it, I felt like I'd arrived. I felt like, I'm, hey, I'm 48 inches or 54 inches or whatever it was, and I can ride anything I want to in the park. At that time, I honestly felt like I can stop growing. I've made it. I'm glad I didn't stop growing then. But honestly, I felt like I'd, I'd, I'd arrived. I've sometimes wondered if there was a minimum height requirement in Gethsemane. That is, a minimum suffering requirement for what Jesus had to endure in order to save humanity. Now, in 2 Nephi chapter 9, Jacob talks about this, this monster. It seems to be a two-headed one because he calls it death and hell. As we know from Eden, Adam and Eve brought into the world both physical death and spiritual death. There's the two-headed monster that Jacob was describing. So for Jesus to right the wrong, to him, for him to reverse the fall, he would have to overcome that two-headed monster. The atonement would have to overcome sin and death. How did he do that? By suffering for all of our sin and for submitting to death. Jesus endured both of those deaths himself and overcame them both on, the, on behalf of all of us. But is that all he suffered? I wonder if that was the minimum required. And if you will overcome sin and death, then you can say it is finished. And yet, what else did he suffer? This is going back to that divine empathy that Jesus won in Gethsemane. So here's some addition for you. Think of the list that Isaiah gives us as far as what Jesus would endure. If we start with the, the absolutely required minimum of sin and death, and I even hesitate to call it a minimum because those are impossible amounts already. But to add to that, here's where our addition comes in. Isaiah in chapter 53 mentions transgressions and iniquities. Alma, which in this case would be the Book of Mormon equivalent to Isaiah's passage, adds to that list death, sins, and transgressions. So keep on one side of the line these absolute minimum requirements. Transgressions, iniquities, death, sins, transgressions, again. But then add to that. I think part of the addition of the awful arithmetic of the atonement is when Isaiah adds to transgressions and iniquities, griefs and sorrows. Or when Alma takes the required death, sins and transgressions and adds to it pains, afflictions, temptations, sicknesses, 
infirmities. I feel strongly that Jesus went so far beyond the minimum by adding and adding and adding every element of the mortal experience that you or I could possibly endure. Why? For perfect empathy. That his bowels might be filled with compassion, with mercy, with understanding according to the flesh so that he might succor his people instead of just forgive them. I don't, I am in no way like Jesus in this, but if all I felt about someone else was the price I had to pay to free them, if it were me, I would end up with bitter, a certain level of bitterness perhaps disgust, perhaps even anger, at least righteous indignation. How could they do this knowing that I would have to make up for it, that I would have to suffer for them? So when I go back to Alma 7 and he says repeatedly that he took upon himself all this addition, I wonder if part of that was in his perfect wisdom, a way to acquire perfect love, experientially, and not just cognitively. As if Jesus were saying to the Father, I don't want to hate them. I don't want to be disgusted by them. I don't want to be indignant. I want to understand. So yes, I will suffer transgressions and iniquities and death and sin. But on top of that, will you please add to the measure add to the account. I want to know their grief and their sorrow. I want to know the strength of their temptations and the weakness of their will so that I can understand how hard it is for them to choose the right. I want to know how much they're pained by their inadequacies and inabilities to fully follow me. I want to understand their sicknesses and infirmities. I want, I want to descend below all things so that I can remove from any mortal the sense of solitude as if they're the only ones to understand what they're going through. That is part of the addition that Jesus asked for in taking upon himself so much more than some kind of minimum suffering requirement, if such there was. At this point, I also see multiplication factoring in with this addition. Because it wasn't just one small group where all these things were added to them. But take the addition of all of these things, of sin, transgression, iniquity, death, in addition to suffering, sorrow, infirmity, sickness, grief, all of these things. Add that all together, but then multiply it and multiply it and multiply it again. In Alma chapter 13, verses 3 through 5, Alma teaches that Christ's atonement covers all that occurred even in pre-mortality. That Christ's atonement was the preparatory redemption that Alma describes in chapter 13. Couple that with Alma 39, where Alma is speaking to his wayward son Corianton and letting him know, of course we need to understand the atonement even before it occurs. So again, part of this 
whether it stretches all the way back to pre-mortality, as it stretches back into the, the B.C. saints. But he also says to his son that Christ's atonement covers all that occurs throughout history. That's, it's, it's as important for him in his time period to know of Christ's atonement as those that lived during his lifetime or far after it. So if we take Alma 13 and Alma 39, we can take the addition of the atonement and then multiply it temporally, both back into the beginning of premortality and forward to the final day. If that is the temporal dimension of the multiplication of the atonement, there's also a spatial dimension to this. In Moses chapter 1, Moses says that Jesus was the creator of worlds without number. And couple that to section 76 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This testimony, last of all, which Joseph and Sidney give of him, that he lives, for we saw him, even on the right hand of God. The way it's described in that powerful passage, notice what is said regarding these worlds without number that Jesus has created. Verse 24 of section 76, that by him and through him and of him, the worlds, plural, are and were, present and past, created. And the inhabitants thereof, the inhabitants of these worlds without number that are and were created through him, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. There's even a poetic version of section 76 uh, that goes between Joseph Smith and W.W. Phelps in which it describes in that verse that all of those inhabitants are saved by the very same powers whereby we are saved. So again, Alma 13, Alma 39, stretch back into premortality, stretch forward to the very end. Worlds without number have I created, and I save them all through the same Jesus Christ multiplication of the atonement throughout space and time. No wonder Amulek uses those two magnificent adjectives to describe it, that it was infinite and eternal. The infinite aspect seems to describe that spatial component, worlds without number. The eternal aspect seems to suggest that temporal component, stretching endlessly in both directions of time and throughout space. That is multiplication to an infinite degree. No wonder with the addition of all of those things and the infinite multiplication of those additives, the weight of those things crushed Jesus to the point of pressing out his life through every pore. Recall that Gethsemane means olive press, where such weight crushing into these olives until oil is extruded from them. That was Jesus beneath this infinite load. No wonder Matthew says that he fell on his face in the garden. By the way, I think it's here where John the Revelator gives us an insight into something that he would not share as John the Beloved. In Revelation chapter 14, I think he describes Gethsemane symbolically. 
Revelation 14 is where John in vision is seen the harvest of the grapes of wrath. As we sing, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's the poetic musical version of the end of Revelation chapter 14. In verse 18, this angel is told to thrust in his sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, Gethsemane is olive press. Here is winepress. But what does it take to heal the wounds of the, the man that the Good Samaritan helps? Oil and wine. Olive press and wine press together. Verse 20, And the wine press was trodden without the city. Gethsemane lay outside the city of Jerusalem's walls. But notice this is not grape juice that's flowing out from it. And blood came out of the wine press, even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Now again, this is a symbolic vision. But it describes symbolically what Jesus is doing that solitary night where he is trotting the winepress alone, where it is blood because of the crushing weight of addition multiplied through a divided soul until the blood comes up to the horse bridles. So deep that we can immerse ourselves in that saving blood to the space of 1,600 furlongs. I did the math once on that. That's about 200 miles. And when it dawned on me that, again, symbolically speaking, as if John were having a bird's eye view of what was taking place in this solitary figure treading the wine press and staining all of his raiment in blood that was flowing out up to the horse bridles to a radius of 200 miles in every direction. I went to my maps and put a dot in Jerusalem and measured out 200 miles in every direction just to see symbolically what John was trying to describe. When I drew the circle, it extended northward into Lebanon, eastward into the Arabian Peninsula, south into a sea that was becoming literally red, and west into the, into the Mediterranean. And as I looked at the map, I said to myself, wow, that circle covers all of Israel. And the Spirit very quickly confirmed that truth. Yes, the atoning blood of Jesus Christ does indeed cover all of Israel. All of our sins, all of our sufferings, all of our sorrows, crushed under the weight of added multiplication so that we can become clean and also so that we can become comforted. That's what Jesus chose as part of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. The sheer scope of all of this must have demanded the attention of all eternity. As we're walking through these hallways in the art gallery and seeing Jesus as Son of God and Jesus as Son of Mary, I've seen infinitude itself, a vast expanse of space where worlds without number were created and saved by Jesus Christ. To see him, this solitary figure, tra trampling the wine press, staining his raiment, crushed under infinite weight, falling upon his face. I also picture 
portraits of onlookers throughout eternity watching with him for that one hour since no mortal was able to do so. Now this does not come in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. But I wonder if Job provides a clue when he says that in pre-mortality, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, when the Father's plan was presented, what else would we have been doing when the Father's plan was consummated in Calvary and Gethsemane? What else would we have been watching? To see all of eternity again shouting for joy and singing together as Job said we did premortally. If an innumerable host praised the Lord's offering in the council in heaven, this is Revelation chapter 5, if we wept because of the realization that no man in earth or heaven could prevail to open the book with the seven seals and perform the saving mission of the Messiah, and yet once that holy hand was raised and Jesus said, here am I, send me, when the lion of the tribe of Judah prevailed to open the book with the seven seals and all of creation joined in songs of praise, then, then what else would we have been doing during those moments of Gethsemane? If a multitude of the heavenly host sang and praised and pointed towards Bethlehem 33 years earlier, what else would the heavenly host have been doing? that night outside Jerusalem. And if all heaven was focused on that moment, then we can safely assume that all hell was equally moved by what was taking place there. Again, here the Gospels tell us very little. But the book of Revelation talks about this dragon that took with him a third of the stars of heaven in his tail, cast down to earth to continue his battle with anyone who would wage those premortal weapons of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Well, now the blood of the Lamb as prophesied is becoming the blood of the Lamb as shed, in fact. And if there was ever an opportunity for the adversary to strike against his enemy. It was during those dark moments in Gethsemane. If Satan approached Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and offered those three great temptations, then what might Satan have been offering Jesus at the end of the ministry when everything hung in the balance? As any athlete will tell you, it's typically the end of the game where the hardest fighting occurs. And I imagine it would have been no different for Jesus in Gethsemane. If the very jaws of hell gape wide the mouth open at mere mortals in their liberty jails of human suffering, then imagine how much wider those jaws would gape, ready to devour a suffering servant in the darkness of Gethsemane. As Elder Talmadge says in Jesus the Christ, in that hour of anguish, Christ met and overcame all the horrors that Satan, the prince of, the, of this world, could inflict. 
The frightful struggle incident to the temptations immediately following the Lord's baptism was surpassed and overshadowed by this supreme contest with the powers of evil. All of this suggests the various elements of the awful arithmetic of the atonement. The addition of infirmities and then the multiplication of those miseries. The division of soul between divinity and humanity. Subtraction is the only thing we haven't mentioned yet. And yet to see the subtraction of God's Spirit, which took place on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But if the Father's strengthening Spirit was taken from Jesus on the cross, one wonders if it was similarly withdrawn from him in Gethsemane. Again, if the Spirit cannot dwell in unholy tabernacles, and Jesus at that time had become unholy because of our sins, then did the Father withdraw His Spirit and subtract that strength so that His Son could fully atone, fully alone. No wonder an angel was sent to strengthen Him, the identity of whom we don't know for sure, but as has been suggested by so many, perhaps Michael, the archangel, who fought premortally on Jesus' behalf and at his side and who will fight post-mortally to consummate the Lord's saving mission. This same earthly Adam who brought on the fall so that through one man all might die, even so through one man Jesus all might be made alive. This same gardener himself as if to say to Jesus, you helped me through my garden, allow me to help you through yours. Unable to remove any of these burdens, but doing his all to strengthen this suffering servant. Take all of this, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and then raise it to an infinite and eternal degree. And there you have the awful arithmetic of the atonement. If we were to chart this, graph it, create vectors that define and describe all of these arithmetical expressions, picture the division pulling Jesus between divinity and humanity. Picture the hopes of heaven drawing him upward and the weight of all worlds dragging him down the devil tempting him downward and the angel strengthening him heavenward. And you have a faint depiction of what the awful arithmetic of the atonement might look like. Perhaps artwork alone is insufficient to do justice to what Jesus did to bring mercy to the world. Perhaps music is required to help us understand and feel a little bit more of what Jesus is experiencing here. One of the best examples I've ever experienced comes from a musical allegory written by Michael McLean and Bryce Newbert and Merrill Jensen 25 years ago. It happened to be two years before I spent a semester in Jerusalem where we would go to the Garden of Gethsemane almost every week. Some of my fondest memories of my five months in the Holy Land were spent at one of the holiest sites there. 
at the Garden of Gethsemane. This allegory is called the Garden. And musically, it tells the story of a man with many names. That's Jesus, who comes into a garden as promised by the gardener himself. This garden is full of sufferers. There's a ram caught in a thicket, unable to free himself. There's a tree that is barren that cannot bring forth fruit. There's a seedling unable to grow and a millstone that feels worthless. And yet this gardener reassures them all by promising that this man with many names will come and offer them all that they need. Purpose to the millstone, freedom to the ram, growth to the seedling, fruitfulness to the barren tree. And yet there's a landlord that wants none of this to happen. A landlord who feels that he controls the garden, that this is his territory. And no unnamed man will ever enter to perform that saving work. There is a moment in this allegorical oratory where all things converge on the coming of this man with many names. They all end up singing together. At this moment, the center of eternity itself as the atonement unfolds in all of its awful arithmetic. As you listen to it, allow both the music and the art to come together to try to help us make sense of what the atonement entailed. This is not my will from the garden.
he's near him. He prays like someone hears him. Who is this father he is talking to? I feel him kneeling over me right now. I feel that I must steady him somehow. If I were free, I'd be there. I can't escape from this snake. But I can't bear to see him suffer so. I never understood such anguish. The pressure's growing. But I'm not here to do as I will. My blood is showing. I pray for strength to do as thou wilt. But my will but thine be done.
We tend to imagine that night in Gethsemane as the Savior's only experience in that garden. And yet in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verse 39, we read that Jesus came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. The garden was there at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and he was wont to go there. In John 18, though John doesn't tell us what occurred there, as I said, it does say that he went forth where there was a garden, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. I pray that Gethsemane becomes a place where we resort oft times, that it becomes a place where we are wont to go so that we can find Jesus there, so that we can watch with him one hour and be changed by that experience. As I was finishing my time in Gethsemane, I received a letter from my father who expressed his worry that he would never get to go to Jerusalem himself. Thankfully, he was able eventually. But at the time, wondering if he'd ever get to go, he sent me this letter, and this wonderful father who loves the Lord asked me to do him a simple favor. He said, son, will you spend some time in Gethsemane for me? And so on one Sabbath, I went. I actually listened to the entire oratorio, the garden. I spent hours in the garden that day for my father. But in some ways, that's what we all said to Jesus. Will you spend some time in Gethsemane for me? Will you take upon yourself my sins? Will you suffer my death? Will you experience my sorrow? Will you feel my infirmity? Will your bowels be filled with compassion for me? And if Gethsemane is a place we often go, we will find that merciful Messiah there for us. Ella Wheeler Wilcox, a wonderful Christian poet, I think described it beautifully in her poem, Gethsemane. In golden youth, when seems the earth a summer land of singing mirth, when souls are glad and hearts are light and not a shadow lurks in sight, we do not know it, but there lies somewhere veiled neath evening skies a garden which we all must see, the Garden of Gethsemane. With joyous steps we go our ways. Love lends a halo to our days. Light sorrows sail like clouds afar. We laugh and say how strong we are. We hurry on and hurrying go close to the borderland of woe that waits for you and waits for me, forever waits Gethsemane. Down shadowy lanes, across strange streams, bridged over by our broken dreams, Behind the misty caps of years, beyond the great salt fount of tears, the garden lies. Strive as you may, you cannot miss it on your way. All paths that have been or shall be pass somewhere through Gethsemane. All those who journey, soon or late, must pass within the garden's gate, must kneel alone in darkness there and battle with some fierce despair. God pity those who cannot say, not mine, but thine, who only pray, let this cup pass, and cannot see the purpose in Gethsemane. May we see the purpose in Gethsemane. You'll see it in the mirror 
every time you look. That was the Lord's purpose, us. Jesus was willing to take our place. Gethsemane was our garden, just as Calvary was our cross. And the tomb was not belonging to Joseph of Arimathea alone. It was our grave. And Jesus switched spots with us in each of them. He took our suffering in the garden. He took our punishment on the cross. He took our death in the grave. And in the process allows us to take his place alongside the Father in glory. When Jesus washed the apostles' feet, it was our dirt that was moved to his raiment. The towel that he used to wash them, he was girded with. He was wearing it. Our dirt goes to his raiment. Our stains are what force him to wear what Elder Maxwell called robes of reminding red. If anyone deserves to be wearing white in that second coming day, it would be Jesus. And yet he who trod the winepress alone will bear our stains that day that we might come in white raiment. Even in his resurrected body, Jesus maintains his scars, his lesions of love as they have been called. Those are our scars that he is carrying, that we might have a perfect resurrected body at his expense. We are the Barabbas, the Bar Abba, the son of the father, the daughter of mother. That is every one of us that is freed from a cross that we deserve when Jesus takes our place upon it. Again, it was Joseph's tomb, and yet Jesus replaced him there and did the same for all of us. It is his eyes, but they shed our tears as he endures all that our mortal experience throws at us. It took 1,800 years before Jesus spoke of his own atonement. In section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, begging us to repent so that we would not suffer what he suffered, he gives us an insight into what he suffered himself, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit. And would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. There's that sunside. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, both his holy Father and the Father's side within him that he partook and finished. But notice what he finished. This is my favorite word describing the atonement in all of Scripture, and it came from the atoning one himself. Glory be to the Father, I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. When he said it is finished from the cross, what was finished? His work? No, according to this passage, only his preparations. His work would then follow and extend in all directions infinitely and intimately and eternally. I am prepared now experientially and not just cognitively, prepared with perfect empathy, prepared with condescending compassion to meet every mortal need. I am grateful for Christ's preparations. And as you prepare yourself,
for this Easter, I pray that the awful arithmetic of the atonement will add to your experience, will multiply your joy, will subtract your sorrows, and will eliminate any division that you feel that separates you from him. I testify of his perfect love and wish you all the happiest of Easter's. I pray that you may feel his perfect love and sense the depth of his preparation to meet your every need. 